You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. I could never have thought that my marriage would have this kind of fulfillment to have my husband say on his deathbed, your presence was deeply drawn into my soul. I mean, then maybe there is no one right that's going to be right for your whole life. For some people, I think that's true, and for others, clearly not. The paths change course and diverge, and, and you get to make choices. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 115, Love, Spirituality, and Self, airing for the first time on Sunday, November 24th, 2013. Today's guests include Elaine McGillicuddy, poet, author, and former Ursuline nun, and Suki Curtis, artist and former Episcopal priest. As humans, we gravitate towards certainty and stability. We like to believe that life has an inherent logic. What many of us learn as we progress through our lives is that things are far less logical than they seem. As humans, we gravitate towards certainty and stability. We like to believe that life has an inherent logic. What many of us learn as we progress through our lives is that things are far less logical than they seem, or at least far less intellectually logical. When we open ourselves to the logic of the heart, we find stability through a deeper sense of our own spiritual selves. In opening their hearts to the love of self and others, our guests today have done just that. We hope that our conversations with Elaine McGillicuddy and Suki Curtis will inspire you to open yourself to the logic of your heart and perhaps gain a deeper understanding of your own spiritual self. Thank you for joining us. I've always been a firm believer that life circles back around when you really need it to, and that people that you hear about and you think, I'd really like to meet that person someday, eventually you do end up meeting them. For me, Elaine McGillicuddy is one of these individuals. I've known about Elaine for many years as the founder, the co-founder of the Portland Yoga Studio. Um, And... I picked up her book at Longfellow Books, which was Sing to Me and I Will Hear You, the poems, started reading and reached out to her and she said, oh, good, because now I'm writing my memoir, Sing to Me and I Will Hear You, the memoir, a love story, which is about her relationship with her husband, Francis McGillicuddy. I'm really happy to have you in the studio with me today, Elaine. I'm happy to be here. Elaine, there are so many things that I believe you and I could talk about. You're a poet, you're a writer, you're a former Ursuline nun, you're a retired high school English teacher, Mm -hmm. and we've already mentioned that you're a yoga teacher, you're a certified Iyengar yoga teacher, and um, 
you do dances of peace. And you also have a permaculture at your house. Right. <laughs> and, you're, and you're very active in the Pax Christi movement, from what I understand. So you, you've lived a very broad and full life in, in the decades that you've been with us. But let's start with this love story idea, because I think that that is very central to um, why I thought it might be interesting to have you here today. The wonder of what happened to Francis and me has n- never faded even now, and we were aware of it. You know, I was a nun and he was a priest when we met. And the fact that we were both sent to Waterville, Maine the same month, the same year, 1968 in September, uh, just seems to prove what we used to say, that ours was a marriage made in heaven. Um, Everything seemed to work together to indicate that it was all right for me to notice that he was handsome, even though I was a nun and he was a priest. Around that time, there was it's probably too complex to get into, but after that, Vatican II had a big influence on the thinking of Catholics at that time. Now, I don't know how much our current culture is aware of Vatican II in 1968, but it was the council in Rome that opened the windows, and it... it, it fit with everything everything that was going on in you know in the 60s the peace movement and all of that anyway there was an idea in the air called the third way uh, when i studied theology at, or religious studies at providence college one of the nun, i think it was a nun uh, wrote a paper her master's degree was on the third way which is like platonic love so when i met father mcgillicuddy as Sister Maureen, that was my nun's name, Um, I thought it was the third way. And then I was assigned as campus minister at Colby College. So I was teaching in his parish. So we kept getting thrown together because I was campus minister and it was those heady anti-war years. The students at Colby College occupied the chapel. I became friends as a campus minister with the students. So I had two lives, in a way. I was living in the convent, teaching in Francis's parish school, and then um, being campus minister at Colby College. So in the book I'm writing now, Sing to Me and I Will Hear You, The Love Story, I relate how Francis and I kept getting thrown together. I was teaching at the, his parish, the school, eighth grade in uh, Sacred Heart School in Waterville, Maine. I was campus minister at Colby College, and I was living at the convent, Mount Marisi Convent. And at that time, it was the heady anti-war years. The Colby College students occupied the chapel. So I was taken up with all of that, and simultaneously the nuns were trying to decide whether they could wear, uh, let a little bit of their hair show. I didn't say this in the book, but uh, you know whether they could wear blue or or black or another color, and I'd come home from those. Uh, you know the contrast between those two worlds was so strong, and then my attraction for Francis, which I thought was this kind of platonic love, third way that was seemed to be fine, that was acceptable at the time. Um, um, I really gradually 
fell in love with him, and that's how the first chapter ends. The first chapter is called Through the Third Way because I allowed uh, a relation, I allowed a, uh, a relationship to happen that ended up uh, being more than I could handle as a nun, I guess. Anyway, it's a very interesting story. Well, you preface the book by saying, Francis and I were convinced the love given us was bigger than both of us, and so it's a love story meant to be shared with those who love love. And you also dedicate the book to your goddaughter, Rowan. So as I'm reading your book, and I was um, pleased to be able to get a draft of your book, so I, I really relished every word that you wrote, and the entire story was so powerful to me. Um, it really struck me that you were talking about more than just the love between two people. It was this love that came from this higher place, higher or more universal place, let's just say. And I wondered if that was one of the moving forces for you as you both made this very difficult decision to leave the priesthood, to leave um, being a nun, as the sense that perhaps you were given this love from God. And perhaps there was no better way to celebrate God's love than to love one another. There's no better way to dis, to to character. Well, who, who can speak of God? I just say God is love, and that is in the Bible. When Francis and I were married, we had this sense that our love was a witness to God's love. That was very strong, and it and it persisted through our lives. It was, I think we were so aware of how extraordinary our story was because we were caught between, you know, the church laws, man-made laws too, man-made church laws, because in the Eastern Church, priests can marry. And yet, Francis was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and he wanted to remain a priest. And I was a nun who left the convent, and so we had a two-year underground period. That's the second chapter, called Underground, where we were caught between our love, wanting to be married with him still as a priest, and the Vatican, at the Vatican they were actively debating this. So it was a matter of, well, maybe they will allow married priests. It looked that way. Even now online, people can go and find some of those articles, and I mention them in my book, A Few Titles. So we, you know, we were hoping for that, but when, the, when they said no, and, and then I reveal in the book that a priest told a bishop about Francis and my underground relationship, you know, when Francis died, and I didn't say this in the book, although I alluded to it, when Francis was dying, the person who reported him to the bishop emailed, and Francis said, so-and-so, I forgive you, it was the biggest favor you did for me. And I only allude to that indirectly in the book, but you know, he made peace, and, and this person felt bad about having done that. But Francis said, you did me the biggest favor in my life, uh, because that was a big, that was the trigger, you know, his being in front of the bishop, and he said, we'll call it off, and then we had the second of two moratoriums. So it was not easy having an underground period, and 
you know. So it was quite a joyous thing. Uh, in the book, I call the third chapter From Exodus to Avalon. It's so interesting. A young um, friend, Thomas Ambrose, whom we met through yoga, who's a principal, I think, or maybe a superintendent at a school now. Thomas Ambrose was working for his degree at USM, a degree in psychology or counseling, whatever, and he needed a, 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 a life interview, so he, in, he interviewed Francis in 1999. That's 10 years or 10 years before Francis was dying, just that recently. And... Um, Thomas was able to verbatim give me a written transcript of that dialogue with with him. So in the book, I have Francis' own account of what it was like when he went to the bishop and when he re, when he went to Massachusetts to you know try to think it over, and when he decided and came home and told me. So I quoted his words. I, I had to have his own words. It's. Um, he lapses into, you know, incorrect grammar. He lapses into the present tense and refers to the bishop as the head honcho. So it's just so alive. And that second chapter, uh, which is called Underground, ends with the Exodus. Francis said, it felt like the Exodus. Yay, the Exodus. So the third chapter is From Exodus to Avalon, because the little house we bought that I still have is on Avalon Road without sidewalks. And then we ended up with permaculture for the last three years of Francis' life, creating an edible landscape, which is really like an Eden. So, um, yeah, it's just a wonderful experience for me to relive our beautiful love story and to share it with the world. (laughs) You quote in your book... E.E. Cummings' line, be of love more careful than of everything. And it is this care and um, gentleness, I think, that I sense around the love that you have for Francis. You treat it as something precious and something that, I mean, some people might leave the church and feel somehow bitter or angry or we were forced to do this or... Because there was a lot of loss. You had to leave a lot behind. You had to leave your identities behind. But I really don't ever have that sense in reading about this. There's just this sense of gratitude that pervades the entire book. And in fact, it even gets to the place where Francis is diagnosed with um, a rare form of cancer. And you know you don't have very much time left. And as sad as you are, I still feel gratitude. How do you manage to do that? Because so many people can't. Perhaps being older, you know, uh, Francis was, I forget exactly, he was eight years older than I. I was 36 when I left. And I think being a little older when we found each other gave us a sense of the preciousness of it, how our marriage would be a little shorter (laughs) because we got married later in life. And... um, I don't know. Yes, we we did consciously care for it. We took we did a marriage encounter weekend, two of those weekends, and I mention in the book, in a sense, those shaped us, 
because it and it not only gave me a lot of primary sources to use in writing the book because I have his marriage encounter notebooks in mine. We didn't identify with all of you know we didn't we weren't active in the movement as such, but those two weekends profoundly affected us because we we kept up the practice that they suggest that we uh, adopt of continuing to write. Do you know how the marriage encounter works? But we only did it on holidays and things like that. However, at Christmas or anniversaries or birthdays, I have these precious notes, from, and it sh- reflects the thinking at the time. And in, in I have a section in the book on our marriage encounter notebooks, and I... And, and back and forth, I share what comes actually from our notebooks. But one, I remember one instance, which I did quote in the love story, where Francis talks about how um, we keep the wonder in our relationship this way. You know, about it was about reflecting together. I think that that helped us and uh, to to to. Um, not just take our temperature, but... And, and the other Im- very important thing is to look outside of ourselves. I have a section on the baby question and the ad- attempt, the adoption attempt, um, and that, that's a whole other story. However, I think in the, long, in the end, because we didn't have children, our lives, which we wanted them to be uh, generative, ended up being generative in a different way. So that consciousness of wanting to leave something for the next generation was stronger because we didn't have children. So, you know, we had met over the peace movement. So of the four big things, the the four big themes in our lives, uh, the peace work, we met over that. But the other three are what came along and and all, all providence. I'm I'm big on providence. You know. I mean, I met Francis unexpectedly. I didn't expect this would happen. So, I've been aware throughout my life how at the major points of decision making, I seem to have a gut knowing. You know the Enneagram? Um, I have this one energy, and ones tend to have a strong gut sense about things, and I get a kind of a clarity about some things, and and it's strong, and providence is mixed in with that, too. Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. Remember the moment you fell in love for the first time? Your heart raced and you couldn't wait to spend time with your partner? And when you were apart, you couldn't wait to be with them again? As your relationship with this person grew and the years passed, you kept learning about each other. Your relationship grew deeper and continued to evolve. Now apply that same thought to the relationship you have with your money and finances. Because it really is a relationship that changes and evolves as you move through life. But when was the last time you took a step back to assess how you feel about your finances and how your emotional life is impacted by it? You see, money is a living thing and your relationship with it 
shifts and grows as you move through different stages in your life. Knowing how to relate on an emotional level to your finances can and will impact your life for the better. It's all a matter of understanding. To learn more, go to www.shepherdfinancialmain.com or like us on Facebook. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention, focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Having read Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain, it was interesting for me to note that this was such um, an important reason for Francis having gone into the priesthood. I, yes. I think from what I understand, it, he read it two years before. Exactly. I, that was just, another thing that, that nudged him toward the priesthood, to see that he was a sophisticated person who had had quite a lot of experiences, and yet he was drawn to that. And uh, yes, the mysticism of... Uh, uh, that you know that Thomas Merton demonstrated or uh, witnessed to drew Francis, yes, and also the beginnings of this understanding that um, there isn't as large a divide between the Eastern and Western um, religious practices as we've once thought. Thomas Merton was very much exactly accepting. yes, yes. You know, in teaching yoga and learning a little bit about the Eastern thought. Francis was exposed to that, too. Um, that affected us. When, um, after we co-founded Portland Yoga Studio, at, in those days we didn't use the uh, Internet as much, so we mailed out um, brochures every season. So two photographers took photos of me alone at first, and then when we had a more teachers, uh, a lot of us, and we would use those photos on these brochures. And at, eventually, there were 12 of those photos that were pretty special of me doing advanced yoga poses because I had a hip problem. I was almost hit by a car when I was five. And yoga unraveled my clenched hip that no one could uh, diagnose what was wrong with it, you know. So um, anyway, my point is this, that the um, graphic artist who helped me put those quotes together, put well, he, who took the photos, I don't quite remember how it happened, but I created yoga postcards. I should send you some. There are 12 yoga postcards with quotes from the, from the uh, Western, from the Bible. They're called East-West Series, East-West Series. So those postcards sort of signal 
in, in their being there, the kind of marriage of East and West that we seem to have made spiritually, both of us. Because when Francis was in the hospital, when he was rushed to the hospital that first day on September 24, and we learned it was a cancer we didn't know about, when I came to visit him the second day, he said to me, I'm not having dire thoughts, you know. I'm living in the present moment. You know, that was a phrase, everybody says that nowadays, but that was a phrase, living in the present moment, that was kind of Eastern in a way. The word asana in yoga means posture, literally. And the, a literal translation for it is holding a comfortable seat. But I always used to share with my students the quote that I prefer. It's a translation by Judith Lassiter, one of the master yoga teachers, and it's this. Uh, yoga, asana, is staying with ease. Staying with ease. Instead of holding a comfortable seat, it's staying with ease. Just being present, staying with ease. Abiding in stillness is the other one. Ah, that was my second favorite. Abiding in stillness. It's all coming back. For me, yoga is like brushing my teeth. I mean, it's something it's, I, I can't imagine not living without it. I mean, it's, I realize it's not for everybody, but um, yes, yoga is. And for Francis, too. For my mother, she was, I was able to show her poses that kept her pain-free. And Francis also was doing yoga, even actually, you know, and there's a sense in which um, because I seem to be a little bit like BKS Iyengar in India who used yoga to help people with almost any physical problem, I had that attitude. So when Francis started complaining about his sacroiliac joint, I think I thought... It was a, a musculoskeletal, musculo, musculoskeletal. So I tried all kinds of things to help him, and they helped, but in the end it was cancer all along. But it delayed, it delayed the discovery that it was cancer. But as I say in the book, it was probably good that we didn't know that it was this kind of cancer. They, it, it was, they couldn't have done anything anyway. We would have spent a whole year going back and forth to having all kinds of tests. And this way, um, Francis tried to live a normal life for a year. But he, you know, he was in pain for a year. I have instances. I have uh, little stories in the book how he started to read to Rowan, but it caused pain so he couldn't keep it up. Uh, you know, little signs when you look back. Mm. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. Take care of yourself. How many times have you heard that simple sentence? But too often, we never take the time to do just that. Yet when you take the time to care for yourself, and commit to your long-term expectations, something astonishing happens. Success becomes inevitable. The same can be said for setting proper, long-range expectations for your business. If you plan properly and take care of your business and its systems, business success becomes a reality. I'm Marcy Booth. 
Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMain.com This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. That, that is the challenge. When, when I was reading the book, I, I actually could feel your pain as someone caring for someone in pain. Love is wonderful in the abstract and more challenging on the ground, especially when you are as connected as you were to Francis. How do you move through a day in which this man that's in front of you that you care for so deeply is in such extreme pain? You know, in the moment, um, well, to be a caregiver, I was his bedside nurse. In the moment, there's so much to tend to that adrenaline just carries you. And you it's as if you don't feel, you don't have time to feel it all. And in the reliving it, that's when it comes back. But I mean, I certainly did feel it, but I was just so exhausted. Um, I re- I'm, I'm so grateful I gave, I gave him everything I had, really. And, um, and I'm very happy about that. And he was able to be home when he died. And, um, but I think, I think Grace, Grace and Grit, you know, that's the title of a book by... Um, the one who wrote A Brief History of Everything, Ken Wilbur. His wife died, and he, his book is called Grace and Grit. So I think that just kind of came up spontaneously. I think you get the grace of the moment, you know, yeah, and, and the energy. And as I said, I was driven to try to save his life with macrobiotics. But, you know, in the end, my... Um, requests through lots of helping hands, that wonderful little website that my students found for me to get help, um, I found Meg Wolf, who had just undergone surgery herself, and she saw this request. She was a stranger to me. She saw this request and called up or volunteer, you know, volunteered to bring a meal, and this is a Meg Wolf gourmet macrobiotic meal every day on a beautiful tray with different courses delivered to our home every day the month before Francis died. I'm sure it prolonged his life because he was beginning to not eat, but he ate a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And uh, everything conspired to give us this ending of his life that was so beautiful that 
uh, it ends up being a big part of the book, that last chapter, because um, I it started with Christmas Eve when Francis started talking about his death. And I could tell, as I say in, in the love story, it was as if he was in an altered state, and I just grabbed my pen and I took down what was transpiring between us his it, I can't it, I can't describe it actually I wrote a poem about that it was so incredible that moment when Francis was joking about eating two kinds of ginger cookies a soft one made by one friend and a crisp one made, made by another and yet he was in a kind of altered state aware that he was going to die it was such, I call, it was such an incredible exchange um, during it. At one point, you know, after we talked, after we talked, he said, um, you're, you're in my central core. No, how did he say? That's what he had said in his love letter earlier. I, I need to backtrack because there's two things that happened, two wonderful things that happened in his words to me. After I left the convent, he was still a priest. I was at Providence College studying religious studies, theology, and so he wrote me love letters. So after he died, I had these wonderful love letters, and in one of the love letters, he said, you're in my central core and I am in yours. And I, after Francis died, I read that, those, and I was just so touched by the profundity of it. It's like Jesus saying, abide in me and I in you. I wrote, more than one poem came to me as a result of that. So that was when he was, um, you know, before we married, he said that, you're in my central core and I am in yours. So here we are now, Christmas Eve, 2009, He's talking about dying, and then he said, um, I've been very well served. So there are these two moments. Um, now that I think of it, I actually wrote a poem called Your Poetic Soul that includes both of these moments. The, one, the first was his love letter to me after I left the convent, and the second was really on his deathbed. And uh, this is the poem. It's in the first published book, uh, Sing to Me and I Will Hear You, the poems. It's, the poem is called Your Poetic Soul. Two days before you died, you discovered yourself anew. I never thought myself a poet, you said, but I have a poetic soul. It steered me through a lot of decisions. Oh, Francis, yes, but there's more. At 43, young lover, you told me my core was in yours and yours in mine. And on your deathbed, this, at 82, your presence was deeply drawn into my soul. When Francis said that, I felt it was the culminate, it was, the, I, I wrote a poem that's not published yet called Nader and Zenith. Nader was remembering, you know, last Christmas I wrote that poem. Nader, it was like the low point of, of going through the pain and the loss. But Zenith, remembering 
my, I could never have thought that my marriage would have this kind of fulfillment to have my husband say on his deathbed, your presence was deeply drawn into my soul. Elaine, people are going to want to read more of your poems and uh, to read your upcoming memoir, Love Story. How do people find out about Sing to Me and I Will Hear You, the poems, or a love story? They can go to the blog spot that one of my students created. If they just Google Elaine and Francis as if it's one word, they'll get to the blog spot, elaineandfrancis.blogspot.com. That website blog spot has the actual letters that I wrote to family and friends starting with starting with September 24, 2009. I brought people with me through the process. And so I've continued to write a few. Actually, that blog spot has some poems that are not yet published because every now and then it's there. You know, before this program is out, I will write a letter, Dear Family and Friends. I have been interviewed by Dr. Lisa Belial, and so I will turn them to your uh, podcast radio story and all that. And uh, so on occasion... Every now and then, I write uh, Dear Family and Friends letters, and that's where I will also tell people the book is published. I have a feeling that Sing to Me and I Will Hear You, the Love Story, will be published in early 2014 because I'm refining it with the help of my editor like I'm still working on it. It's even better than the rough... It was almost a rough draft that you read. Uh, so it's going to be a good book. It's it's going to be a big book too, um, you know. Anyway, well, I can't wait to read the finished mm. product, mm. and I appreciate your bringing me along with you, not only through this draft, but also through the stories that you've shared with me mm-hmm. today. I know that people who are listening will find some great meaning of their own. Thank and, you. It's uh, been my privilege. And we've been speaking with Elaine McGillicuddy, author of Sing to Me and I Will Hear You, the poems, and also Sing to Me and I Will Hear You, the love story. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. One of the things I do often is place a compass rose in the landscape, and the compass rose points to the four directions of the universe. And it's something that I really love to do because it does call out those very powerful directions. The north is really the, the head-based energy, the, the place of white buffalo. It's where wisdom and knowledge live, but it's also where conflict lives. We live in the northern hemisphere. We are part of that whole ethos, I guess you might say, where South America is a place of play, it's a place of innocence, a place of trust, it's a place of love. And if you look at the South American people, they're very much like that. The East is about bringing new beginnings into our lives. So when we look toward the East, it's always about what are the new things that can happen and come into our lives. And the West is moving into the darkness, it's into the mysterious, into the most powerful, I guess you might say, of all directions, because we have to move through the darkness to get to the other side, to get to the side of rebirthing and bringing new things into our lives. And our lifetime is spent with a series of peaks and valleys where we move from 
a place of creation and the rise of, of that creation and the, and, the, and the care of creating that creation to the maintenance of that creation. And then eventually we move into the disintegration of that creation. And we have to be looking toward the future and toward what's happening in our lives to, to not let that valley go down too deep and to start to pick up something else new and start to rise again with it. So if you look at your own life, I think you can see that pattern. It's quite evident and it's natural. It's the same thing as the seasons, the spring, the summer, the fall, and the winter. I'm Ted Carter, and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast understands the importance of the health of the body, mind, and spirit. Here to talk about the health of the body is Jim Graderix of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. The Laser Touch One pain relief device has gone worldwide. At Black Bear Medical, we look for products that really work and provide solutions at the source of our customers' health issues. This product is revolutionary in that it combines the effects of electrical stimulation with the benefits of a cold laser. It works at the cellular level, which is why it truly works at the source of acute, chronic, and intractable pain. With a success rate of over 90%, This product has truly changed the lives of hundreds locally and thousands nationally. So if you or someone you know suffers from muscle or nerve pain, let them know the Laser Touch One is worth a treatment demonstration. People all over the world have found pain relief with this product. Now it's your turn. Stop by our Portland or Bangor location today or visit blackbearmedical.com and click on our pain management section of our catalog to learn more. Suki Curtis is a woman who has lived a few different lives, as I think many of us have, but her lives are very interesting because they are, um, there's such a contrast between them. I got to know Suki as a fellow resident of Yarmouth, and Suki used to be an Episcopal priest. No longer is she an Episcopal priest. However, her husband still remains with the church, and now Suki is an artist. So I thought we'd bring her in and talk about what that was like deciding to become an artist or continue being an artist and how she has made these big decisions in her life. How are you, Suki? Hi, Lisa. Uh, Well, as you can imagine, the... um as you say, making that big a decision was not a simple matter at all. Um, I probably, the people closest to me would would concur that I thought about it and talked about it for probably 10 years or something like that in various stages of, um, you know, mulling over the way things go. Um, and and I think it began with perhaps a sense of um, somehow feeling I didn't quite fit in the role of being an Episcopal priest or something about it was um, maybe more burdensome to me than joyful and it didn't feel like quite the right um, sort of mix within my own soul, I guess you could say. Um, but there's a, a, a big sense of obligation and responsibility that I felt having taken ordination vows and um, 
really wanting to honor the commitment that I had made um, all the way back in 1983, I think it was. My memory isn't always clear on that. Um, so it, it was really a long, uh, a long process of kind of living, living in an in-between place and kind of thinking about, um, you know, responsibilities and, and what might be calling me forward. Um, at the same time that I was kind of mulling over that, I had a kind of in, in growing um, hunger to be expressing myself in um, nonverbal ways. I think one thing about my um, most of my the first half of my life, my you know schooling, and then the priesthood where you're doing a lot of reading, writing, speaking, sermons, and so forth. It was all very verbal, and um, that was always uh, an easy road for me in terms of expression. But but this hunger to um, find other means to express myself um, continued to um, grow and kind of require attention, I guess I could say. Um, so there was kind of something growing while, at the same time, my um, sense of myself as a priest was kind of more troubled or shrinking. How did you feel called to become a priest in the first place? Because making that decision is not easy from the get-go. No. Um, I think I had this the... Um, kind of benefit of youthful naivete at the time, <laughs> you know, how that probably helps us get into some things that might be bigger than we had any way of imagining. Um, and I think for me, I, I was in my 20s, and um, even by the end of college, I, I, I probably had what was for um, people in the, of my generation in the mid 70s when I finished college, um, you know, a kind of typical spiritual quest underway. And in my case, it, it really led me to the Episcopal Church through various friends and mentors that I admired and um, love of music, which is um, a very big part of that church's worship. Um, and I, so the quest for me, it was probably a lot of things rolled into one, sort of a personal spiritual quest, um, maybe also kind of looking for an, a kind of identity in the a place to fit in the world, to know who I was and that I had a purpose and, and, um, and perhaps sort of a, a, um, a home, you know, a different from my family, but um, another place where I knew I belonged. So I, somehow I think all those things were rolled into the sense of um, calling. You know, actually I get a little bit squeamish about claiming a calling because I think it's a pretty hard thing to say um, and to know for sure that we are interpreting um, what we claim to be God's desires for us. It, it's always been a, um, a kind of hard thing for me to dare to, to speak aloud. But I did have to get to the point of being able to articulate that when I was on my way to the priesthood. So that was, um, you know, it's quite a long time ago now. So if part of becoming a priest was claiming some sort of identity and some sort of identity that was separate from your family, mm -hmm. then part of 
leaving the priesthood then meant that you left part of your identity behind. What was that like? Well, it was very tumultuous. Um, You know, sometimes I've looked back and I've thought, perhaps I took on the identity of being a priest. You know, there are special clothes that go with the job, too. So there's that, that, um, the metaphor of clothing and and garb actually fits. But of... um, Perhaps I took on that identity when my own um, kind of core identity was a little unformed. You know, I was still, I hadn't really lived out in the world a whole lot. Um, so I, I've often wondered if, you know, maybe if if the people who get ordained later in life have a, have a different sort of way of merging those personal and professional identities. Um, in my case, I remember the the day after that I had officially, um, you know, signed the papers that were the the technical the technical term is renouncing my ordination. Um, I was completely exhausted. I and I woke up. I wrote in my journal. I feel like somebody has died, and I, I think it really was a, a death. I, you know, my I've never been through a divorce. I've known people who have been for sure, and my guess is it's about as close to that experience as as anything I've known before. But a real wrenching, um, and as much as I felt like it was the right thing to do, there was a lot of grief um, with letting go of that life, some of which had already happened before the official act, and um, some of which happened afterwards. But it led to a period of um, probably a couple of years of kind of being back at square one and feeling like I really didn't know who I was. I mean, I knew, you know, personally who I was, but in terms of a, a place in the world and with a, an identifiable profession or identity in that sense. Um, I was kind of in limbo again. One thing that's interesting about your story is that your husband is still a priest. Mm -hmm. In fact, he's still a priest in the parish that is uh, in Yarmouth, is that right? No, we we actually, we shared that role together um, as um, in the Episcopal Church. the single title would be the rector of the church. We were co-rectors. Um, and so we, we because we'd been called to that position together, we felt that we it would be a little odd for one of us to leave and the other to stay. And we both had reached a point of feeling we wanted to explore some other possibilities. So we left St. Bartholomew's behind when many beloved friends and people there. Um, and uh, David, for a while, uh, worked solely as a hospice chaplain, and now he's doing um, two jobs part-time. One is the hospice chaplain, and one uh, as the vicar, which is a, a smaller parish's um, pastor at uh, St. Nicholas Episcopal Church in Scarborough. You have two daughters. Both of whom are out and about in the world, but went to Yarmouth High School, is that right? Well, we actually lived in Cumberland. The church was in Yarmouth, Um, so um, 
many of our parishioners lived in Yarmouth, but some in Cumberland, some Freeport, and so forth. We So our house was in Cumberland, and our two daughters went to the Cumberland schools up th- through, um, uh, well, one of them up through uh, back when it was Greeley Junior High, um, and Anna through... Um, elementary school and then they finished at Waynefleet. So they've had, um, they have friends in both places. And now uh, one is really out in the world. Our older daughter um, has just spent a year in Ghana and is about to go to graduate school in London. We're all envious. And um, our younger daughter is going to be a junior in college. So, How did it feel to them to have two priests as parents while they were growing up, and then one priest as a parent and the other not. Um, It would be an interesting conversation to have them here, too, because they might, you know, from time to time, the the dinner table conversations come around to that topic, and um, they have a rather blunt, plain way of speaking about (laughs) such things, but... um, I actually will never forget when when David and I were first engaged, and we met, we were both already ordained when we met, and one of the teenagers in the youth group in my congregation, this was back in um, Concord, Massachusetts, when he heard that I was marrying um, another priest, he said, boy, do I pity your kids. (laughs) And so I've always thought, like, oh, what are we doing to these children, this sort of double whammy of preacher's kids? Um, I think they survived it pretty well, and all, all, much of that thanks to the fact that St. Bartholomew's was, is a very relaxed, child-friendly um, congregation, and so there wasn't sort of the fishbowl eyes on the preacher's family that some congregations might have. Um, I think they were a little bewildered at my decision, not entirely sure they they got it. Maybe, you know, some of the subtleties of it were just not going to be um, accessible to them and at the time. Um, but very supportive, and um, now I think they just, it's sort of part of the fabric of our life. I'm not sure that they ponder it in a big way, but I, I sense that um, if anything, it has modeled for them, or I hope it has, uh, a freedom to reassess one's life and um, change course, um, which I hope is helpful to them at the place where they are in their lives now, where I know they feel a lot of pressure to kind of figure out what they're going to do and get it right and all of that. And um, clearly, if I'm any example, you don't have to get it I mean, then maybe there is no one right that's going to be right for your whole life. For some people, I think that's true, and for others, clearly not. There are um, the paths, you know, change course and diverge, and and you get to make choices. So I hope that's something that supports them as they move along in the world. Suki, how can people see your art? Where can they find you and learn more about the work that you're doing now? Thanks for asking that. Um, I do have a website. It's uh, 
at sukicurtis.com, and that's S-U-K-I-E-C-U-R-T-I-S. And um, when I'm doing my job right, I keep my website updated. It's pretty good at the moment um, with new photos of paintings and so forth. I am on Facebook, and I'd be happy to... uh, accept friend requests. <laughs> if you let me know how you heard about me, that would be even better. Um, and those are probably, you know, an email. I'm happy to receive email too, but um, Facebook, I do, I have made a lot of connections with fellow artists and people interested in art that way. And um, I enjoy that means of connection um, as well as people who happen to see my work. Also, I, I am apt to have at least something hanging um, all the time at the Yarmouth Frame and Gallery, which is on Route 1 in Yarmouth. I do encourage people to spend some time looking at your paintings. They are beautiful, and um, they do speak to this sense of, um, well, being in the moment. And I appreciate your coming here and taking time to talk with us about what it was like to be a priest and then decide not to be a priest and your spirituality and how you continue to sort of live in the world. Because I think this is something that people who are listening can probably relate to in some way in their own lives. Um, We've been speaking with Suki Curtis, an artist and former Episcopal priest. Thanks for coming in and talking with us today. Thanks very much for having me, Lisa. You have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 115, Love, Spirituality, and Self. Our guests have included Elaine McGillicuddy and Suki Curtis. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and Pinterest and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our love, spirituality, and self-show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Sea Bags, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter, Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Our online producer is Katie Kelleher. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Dr. Lisa Radio Hour.